This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. I had interviewed uh, Dr. Vincent Felitti, one of the authors of the uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences uh, study uh, with Kaiser Permanente. And they've since obviously done another study called Urban Aces in Philadelphia. If you look that up for anybody who's interested in things that weren't, you know, the population is more diverse in, in that second study um, to talk about the what happened to you as a reason for some of the ways in which uh, your adaptations for survival may behaviorally look like. Uh, behavior that is, uh, you know, not welcome in in a schoolroom or in a classroom or whatnot. Mind you, forgetting that the schoolroom or the classroom isn't actually set up particularly for learning, but rather for indoctrination and subjugation. But that's another part of the story that you know all too well. Um, but that this what happened to you piece is sort of part of my journey around understanding, okay, my A score when I find, figured that out was like a four, I think, which is kind of high. Um, not as high as they can be, but certainly like kind of helped me understand that like, okay, so there's some stuff going on here that like happened to me that was like preceding me. And then I started learning a little bit about the way in which um, attachment theory and the way in which the resonance between uh, the caregiver, which often is the mother, not only, but often, which is why I think Freudian psychoanalysis is, you know, challenged because it's not always just the mother. It's if you could insert caregiver, I think maybe more of it might make a little more sense. But anyway, um, that beam gleam that you get when you're getting, you know, an attuning and resonating with your mom or your, you know, early caregiver that you're feeling safe, seen and soothed. You're getting your needs met. You're co-regulating as you would in the womb, but you're just outside of the body, but you're right close to the body. All those things. Yeah, my mom didn't get a chance to do that because I told you she's a doctor. She's, you know, working. She only had a few weeks at home and then she was off. Um, And so it's interesting that like my feeling toward her isn't as goopy as it is toward my grandmother, you know, Um, as as great as my mom is um, or my grandfather for that matter. And I look at the other things like, you know, my father and his sort of, you know, the way in which he was narcissistic or sociopathic, explosive, violent, all those kinds of things. And his inheritance about racial trauma and his attachment stuff, because my grandmother had to leave the Dominican Republic and Haiti and had to take only half her kids to the United States. Uh, well, they first they split up 
in and, and she didn't she wasn't with any of her kids. And so that rupture there and the misogyny that gets seeded there that was preceded by my grandfather's philandering. And so this intergenerational piece around, you know, sort of all of what I'm carrying sort of as a person and then the somatic work that kind of pointed me in a different direction because the the somatic work was, oh, what happened to me? How did I affect, how did my nervous system handle this? How does it handle, what did it learn about bodies and about relationships and about safety and about relationality at a very young age? Because you talk a lot about the first two months and the first two years and childhood. And what I learned then, no matter what happened since, and this is a huge point in the book that you make, is that what happens in the first two months whether if it's positive and attuned and what's needed will change your life for the better, no matter what happens to you afterwards. And if you don't get that, then things can go sideways, no matter how good it is when you're 10 years old for you. So can you talk a little bit about that and then maybe contextualizing how we just don't know how to do that first two months, like in the way that is going to help heal us. (laughs) Right. Right. So one of the things that you know I've been studying for about know, 40 years now is the development of a set of systems, neurotransmitter networks that are really that originate low in the brain and then go up and innervate all the higher parts of the brain and, and actually control and regulate all of the autonomic nervous system, neuroimmune, neuroendocrine system. And so many people have heard of the norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin. And so collectively, these um, neurotransmitter networks, which originate low in the brain, early in life, play a major role, not just in sending sort of neuron-to-neuron communication, but the pattern of activation that occurs early in life sends signals to undifferentiated parts of the brain Telling them how to how to organize, how to, how to you know what to turn on and what to turn off. So early, both in utero and in the particularly the first couple of months of life, these neurotransmitter networks are what we call morphogens, which means that they're communicating. But what they're communicating are what to do, how to develop signals, as opposed to I'm talking to you signals. You know, I'm sending you a message signals. It's like I'm sending you a message not that to tell you that you're going to become an acetylcholine uh, neuron and that, that is involved in attachment, or you're going to become a glutamate neuron that's involved in some other specific thing. So if those networks early in life are activated in really chaotic ways as opposed to sort of a, a pattern that sort of has this rhythm to it, where there's moderate activation and then quieting, moderate activation and then quieting. And that that's what happens when the baby gets hungry and they activate their stress response a little bit and then they cry. But because there's a caregiver present, attentive and attuned, they get regulated and they go back down to this baseline. And so right. if you have caregivers who are present, attentive, attuned and responsive, like w- w- that would happen if you were in a hunter-gatherer clan right. where there's an auntie, a mom, a- an older sibling, a cousin. You know, there's for every little baby, there are four or five adults who are capable of 
meeting your fundamental needs when you get a little bit dysregulated. And, and what that results in is this smooth, regulated pattern of activation of these systems that promotes healthy development of the rest of the brain. But more than anything, it really builds resilience in the stress response systems. So that couple of months of attentive, attuned, responsive caregiving is, is basically a resilience inoculation. Right. It's like getting an immunization for resilience. Now, here's what we do in our society. Rather than having four or five people around to distribute these responsive caregiving interventions, we've got one isolated caregiver who may have other young kids who is living, she's living away from her own extended family and she's not well connected yet to neighbors. And so- and we, we've got a world where it's like, well, you have your own apartment. I don't want to get in your, you know, in your stuff. I don't want, you know, you, you know, it's your thing. That's you right. So here's this young person who is supposed to be taking care of the needs of all these kids on her own. And that's never, ever supposed to happen. Right. And now at least one third of the households in the U.S., that's the way parenting is. And, right. You know, you're on your own. Right. right. And it's exhausting. And I don't care if you're Mother Teresa and you have the stamina of, you know, like a great athlete, it wears you down. And and there's just no way that you can be everything for every kid in every moment. And so these kids get cared for, but the, the pattern of activation and regulation is different. And there'll be longer periods of crying a lot and they'll be harder to soothe and it's more herky-jerky. And that leads to a a more vulnerable child. Right. More vulnerable in many ways, um, (laughs) behaviorally, sort of physically also, like in terms of illness and in terms of predisposition to social determinants of health, so to speak. Right. And, And Francesca, the point you made about the body, you know, the, the whole feedback from the inner world where the infant is trying to make sense out of her own body, it's, it's like if it's confusing, if, wow, if it starts to be rhythmic, like every time I feel the sensation, this is that I later on understand is hunger, then somebody comes and warms me and holds me and rocks me and then meets my fundamental needs. Or... Does somebody come and basically prop me up in a baby chair and sticks a bottle in my mouth so that sensation goes away, but I don't feel anything on my body? That's right. That's that's a whole different experience than being completely embraced in the warmth of skin-to-skin contact from the mom. Right. And so the more we compromise the life of these young parents, the more we don't support them the less they're going to be able to create these sort of sensory embodied experiences, these somatosensory baths that literally build in this total body experience of, of health. <clears throat> That's right. Skin contact is, you know, very, very well. It causes just huge releases of, of wonderful hormones like BDNF, you know, brain derived neurotrophic factor that is good for the brain, but it's also good for all the rest of the body. And, you know, so you're meeting the fundamental, you know, this fundamental calorie need for the baby, but there's a somatic need that is going to become ultimately an emotional need yes. that's not being met. 
That's right. A relational, it becomes a relational need. You're not just, you're not, it's the difference between doing a task, feeding the child and being with the child in a way that also includes feeding, you know, and, and I think that that's sort of your whole point is, you know, that we're healed in relationship and love is healing. And I think it's so unfair because we've been fed the myth through capitalism and hoarding um, or entitlement or subjugation or whatever you want to call it of the rugged individualism and the nuclear family. And we've been, you know, it's been used as a bedrock, um, you know, in the sociopolitical context of, of sort of inviting in more consumerism and the media is part of that in terms of all the things that you don't have that you can now buy, which isn't actually what helps us get more regulated and be more balanced. And it may help alleviate certain things, just like the medical model. In many ways, we need people who can be good surgeons and we need people who can, uh, you know, who can build an airplane safely. But, but that kind of engineering, that, you know, sort of cortex, you know, cortex, uh, you know, task-oriented um, activity that you were talking about earlier, that is good for certain contexts. But what we're talking about here, this inoculation piece, this relational, um, you know, resilience uh, inoculation is is purely about um, just being, not, I mean, the doing is is coming in a way in part with or after the being with. You know, and we and we put everything on the doing. And I think that's such a shift in people's thinking uh, because we are time starved in this society. But that grind is what is we're we're almost like kneeling at the altar of the grind in this country. And we're and we're given rewards for it. Um, Social capital. People say, oh, you work so hard. Honestly, if you think about the system and, it, and I, I'm not saying an individual, but the system like all biological systems that, that develop, they develop all kinds of mechanisms to maintain themselves. Yeah. If people actually had moments where they were fully reflective, they wouldn't live the way they live. See, it, it, which means that all the whole system would unravel. That's right. Capitalism would unravel. Materialism would unravel. Um, and so, so uh, oddly enough, there are all kinds of things like that, you know, consuming time, overworking, keeping people sleep deprived. It keeps them like this. And then when people go on vacation and they take a couple of weeks off and they're in the woods and they walk and they're like, why do we live this way? Do I need a house this big? Why don't we do, you know, I, I want to live a different way. And right. then vacation's over and they go back to work. Right. But, you know, we, we get, we, people get caught in traps. And the trap is in the, when you're in the midst of this consumeristic mindset, you want a bigger house. And so you get a bigger mortgage, which means you have to have, you can't quit your job. Right. You know, people don't learn to save. You can't, I mean, you can't move if, if you, you know, it's the amount of, you know, if, these are all interactive dynamic traps that we get caught in, in, the, in this modern world. And I think honestly, until we have a certain critical mass of people who, for, you know, who learn the skills you have, Francesca. <laughs> well, no, seriously. Learning. I mean, think about how hard it is, right? Yeah. You've been intentionally trying to be more mindful, to sort of think about how do I get out of the rat race that I was in, into a more meaningful set of activities. It takes time. Yeah. It takes support. It takes a community. And, and there's a lot of people that are like, you know, living in, I don't know, Dickinson, North Dakota, and they don't have a big community of people who are going to help them do that. Right. And so they just 
think about it, and then they go watch TV. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. I want to get to watch the, my next Netflix series. Right, right. And I and I I so appreciate what you're saying because it does take all those things. And I think that's why we, you know, the Nat Ministry is a great account to follow on Instagram. And um, you know, the the she's basically saying, you know, we need to have our time back, rest, especially for those of you who are people of color, um, those of us, you know, who are people of color. Um, take your time back and rest and reflect and enjoy. And and when we talk about another, you know, really visionary thinker and poet, Sonia Renee Taylor, who wrote a book called The Body is Not an Apology, a wonderful, wonderful teacher, um, is also talking a lot about how when we talk about abolishing the police or, you know, those kinds of things, reimagining new systems, we're talking about that place of creativity and that place of, you know, um, possibility and that place of... Um, of not being stuck in that, you know, narrow uh, band of, of sort of the, the, the hamster wheel, and that you can't do that unless you feel safe. And I think that a lot of times people um, feel safe when they get to the vacation and they get to a place that's, that's, you know, landed. But when they feel as though they might be abandoned, that their tribe is going to leave them if they go against the grain and they don't want to live in this way anymore, um, I think that that just kind of pulls them back in. And so it kind of perpetuates that. Because again, it's relational. It's the magnet of relationality. Exactly. Um, And your tribe, you know, for many people who work, the people who comprise their clan for a big part of the day are the people they work with. Right. And, and then they have some time at home. And I mean, everybody, I, I think the, the issue of time and, and the lack of reflective moments is really um, probably one of the most important things to address. It's so interesting because as you're saying that, and you mentioned me that I've been doing work, I remember my first work on myself, if you will, for whatever you want to call it, self-reflection, you know, took time to do a retreat because I was afforded financially the opportunity to go and I had the time to go and, you know, all those things. And the people at the retreat center were kind and took care of me. But I remember, you know, I until I sort of had my aha moment, as Oprah would say, um, which is when I, I don't know if I told you I was put in jail about five or six years ago because I didn't use my directional and I didn't take a breathalyzer. So it's an automatic overnight. And I was in jail for 12 hours or 14 hours or 16 hours or whatever it was with a bunch of other women who had not, who, who had been there before, you know, and I was, I had not been there before. And um, I woke up the next day and I never drank again. And I sort of started to, because I had had a couple of drinks. um, And I had always, that had been sort of my self-medication piece around, you know, uh, trying to figure out how to quell the pain. But I was never, ever able to sit with myself. Because people say, meditate, meditate. When I was drinking, like before this aha moment, this jail experience, I had never been able to sit with myself but I knew the question was, why do I not feel worthy? Why do I not feel like I deserve the good things that people tell me about myself? I had graduated from Harvard. I was a television news anchor. I was outwardly successful. And yet my ex dumped me two days before the wedding. And yet I couldn't hold down a relationship. And yet I couldn't figure out, you know, this drinking thing or, you know, regulating my weight. And, you know, you know all these things that are sort of dysregulated manifestations behaviorally. And, and that thing about being in jail, everything kind of just stopped. And I was like, whatever it is, I can't do this anymore, right? I need to be able to do something differently with my life. And I couldn't sit. I tried to meditate before. I couldn't sit. 
And in this retreat, I just cried and I cried and I cried. And I just remember I was sitting, but I was sitting in community. I was Mm. sitting at a retreat. I wasn't sitting by myself. And after those experiences, I started to be able to sit by myself. And then I started to be able to notice that I could be with my thoughts and not be my thoughts. And then I started to notice that my awareness and my intentionality around where I was directing my attention had as much to do with what it was that I was manifesting or what was manifesting around me. And so these things kind of clicked into place very organically. and, And I was just as afraid of being by myself and sitting with myself and my thoughts as anyone, as any of my clients are today. And I will say that being able to be with it and knowing that they're not going to eat you, even though it feels like you're going to die, because that's the way I felt before, is a huge piece to this portal, I think, of what you're talking about, is giving yourself the space to be contemplative. But you can't get there if you're stuck in shame, and the shame is a false narrative about who you really are. Right. And and you're continually getting messages about that. I mean you're not the right size, you're not the right skin color, you're not smart enough, there's always somebody better than you, whatever. Whatever your sense of self is built around, whether it's sport or school or good looks or whatever, you're just not enough. No. You're always going to get that message. And, um, you know, I think just going back to what I said about the public education, for example, public education should teach children how to reflect and and one of the easiest ways to do that and i do this with a lot of the people i work with and and with myself is that human beings aren't you know and i don't mean any disrespect to people who like to sit and think but human beings aren't meant to sit sit for very long periods of time human beings are meant to move so i think that if you learn how to be reflective while you walk or reflective while you do some other motor activity, which a lot of people do. You know, many, many cultures use dancing, for example, as their primary mode to get to sort of a certain trance-like state for certain cognitive things. Uh, You know, lots of people have discovered the, I can't remember who said it, I don't think it was, maybe it was Einstein or somebody really smart said that any idea that that you didn't get any idea you got while sitting isn't worth a damn. Uh, all good ideas come from while you're walking. Uh-huh. <laughs> you got to be in so movement. I do think and... that it's, if for those who mm-hmm, are listening mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. are wanting to, you know, and, and like anybody, I mean, I think a lot of people, people probably have had the experience that you had. We're just sitting and, you know, expecting your brain to kind of go to the right place and do the right thinking. And it's hard. But if you walk, you walk particularly in a beautiful place. Nature will take mm-hmm. you where you need to go. And trust the natural yes. world. Move in the natural world and you'll find that you can get to certain reflective places that will be good for you. And I think that that's something that we need to do more in school. Right. We need to teach our children more about these things. Because I, I think that if you think about the most valuable resource of our, you know, community are, are the people. And the unique part of each person, the creative part of each person is in their cortex. And if we don't ever let them get to their cortex by feeling safe and regulated, we're sort of 
have this incredible untapped, unmined reservoir of creativity and productivity and kindness and goodness that we're not reaching. So we need to think about what are, how do we make our systems and our families and our communities safer, more regulating, more respectful, more Im- imbued with sort of these attributes that we, we know can help uh, unlock the cortex. And don't you think that starts from, at least for me, I think if you can do that for yourself, if you have a capacity to be safe with yourself and feel safe with yourself, if you have a capacity to be kind to your own self, if you have a capacity to recognize the fact that, yeah, you know, I don't look like Gwyneth Paltrow and I never will and that's okay. Or I don't look like, you know, or I don't, I mean, I'm just, you know, throwing shit out there, you know, Um, but like, and I, 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 you know, whatever it is and like, or that like, yeah, I did hurt somebody's feelings. I did make a mistake. I did get arrested. You know what I mean? Like I did, I did get fired from this job. I, I, you know, these things did happen um, that, but I, but I'm okay. Like there's still inherent self-worth. And from that place, I can be in relationship with being present and acting with discernment and wisdom and kindness and compassion in the moment around my cultures and communities that are that I'm a part of but I feel like it's really hard if I'm inside fighting with myself all the time saying I'm not worthy yeah. I mean you talk about in the book about going fishing for walleye with your dad and you had that nice right. resonant kind of you know beingness I mean fishing is a perfect yeah. meditative co-regulating activity right that those things seed your capacity to be yeah. kind to yourself you know you have warts you know we all have warts but you're like not sitting there like, you well, know, flogging I, I yourself say, with no, it. it. Well, I don't know, maybe you are, but. You just never know somebody's story, right? I mean, the older I get, the more I realize that everybody's hard on themselves, mm. you know. And the only people who aren't hard on themselves should be harder on themselves. You know, the narcissists, you know. And um, it, it just, I right. think. Here's the thing that I think is really important. So much of a person's sense of worth, and this is just because of the way we're built, this is the way human beings are built. If you get reflected back at you that you're beautiful, then you start to feel beautiful. Right? And if you get reflected back at mm-hmm. you that you're the wrong color or, you're, or people of your color shouldn't be in this class at Harvard, then you feel like even though part of you knows I am smarter than you, it still eats at you. So the reflective mirror of the people around you is very powerful, particularly when you're young. You know, as you get older, you get a little bit more immune to that. You sort of, I mean, it still feels, it hurts. Right, right. Affirmation's nice, or insults are not so so nice, but you have a little more of a buffer. We we should think a lot about is that, that there's no reason to spend time with people who see no value in you. You know, as you get older, particularly as adult, you know, you don't need to, if people treat you poorly, you know, spend more time with the people that treat you with respect, you know, and it it makes that process easier. That's right. Now, later on, you can go back to the people who treat you poorly after you feel a little more centered and you can use what's in you to right. maybe understand why are you so hateful or why you struggle, you know, what's wrong with me and, but <clears throat> You know, you really, like you said this multiple times on this this podcast, 
you kind of need to start with your own self. If you don't feel safe and solid with yourself, a lot of these aspirations you have about changing other people in the world are going to be really hard. Yeah, I think it turns into that white saviorism that, you know, is one of the things that I talk about in my embodied anti-racism class and that sort of like missionary philosophy of like, you know, and you even spoke to it like, you know, you're not asking the community and going into the community with humility around engagement, um, you know, of sharing resources, if you will, or offering potentially sharing resources, but with some idea that I know better. And that's just not, you know, going to work, you know. Um, and And you just said something else, too, about... The idea of um, starting, you know, kind of from the the inside out. And what came to me was Dr. Joy DeGruy, post-traumatic slave syndrome um, author, talks about positive racial socialization as a way of helping, especially African-American children, uh, have a greater sense of self-esteem, self-respect and self-worth. But that it was a safety mechanism to go back to our survival strategies and instincts to have a black mother, for example, tell, you know, the, the, the little black child, no, you're not as smart as Bobby and no, you're not as whatever, because to make them be smarter would make them be standing out and make them be more of a target. And so these things are, you know, inherited traumas. And to heal that, you know, to your point, getting some of that affirmation back, getting some of that kindness back and, and, and having that reflection back is part of what I think can be the healing. That's what she talks about. Um, we've kind of gone all over the place. I mean, I, I, I really could talk to you for days, but, um, I think the bottom line about a lot of what you offer in this book with, um, with Oprah is that, uh, you know, moderate, controllable, predictable, uh, interactions, and you've talked about this early on in a child's life are part of what keeps them regulated, um, and, and what keeps them feeling safe so that when they grow up and they show up in the world, they can act from a place of, um, of center, of groundedness and wisdom. And that the more that we can do that for the little ones that we have and the more social structures that we can put in place socially to help create more of a tribe and not just have single moms have to deal with five kids and things like that, that maybe well, we can start to break that, some of these that goes with that, Francesca, is, is I, I'm actually quite a big fan of discomfort. Um, I think it's okay. And I think it's important mm. to not that the people learn not to be afraid of being uncomfortable <clears throat> or being depressed, you know, or, you know, there are moments in grief, for example, when you just feel just horrible. And, but if you can keep a recognition that this is a passing phenomenon, that, that I'm not always going to feel this way. Those moments over time, they, yeah. they just kind of get built to your catalog of what's, what's familiar and what's known. And the more the range of your experiences includes these things, the more you're going to be able to stay centered in your everyday life and when things come up that are unexpected or unpredictable, and it just it'll make it easier for you to be present for others when when you're out in the real world. But I think that right now, so many people around parenting and around even around their own mm -hmm. lives as they get older, particularly as they get older, and they don't have, <clears throat> and when we're not being forced to do things that are new, 
We choose to only do things that are comfortable. We choose to only spend time with people that look like us. We choose only to eat food that we know what's going to taste like. So these little moments of exploration, of, of daring, of trying to go hike someplace where you've never been before, um, you know, all of these little things where you stretch yourself a little bit, I think they're important for your brain. They're important for the growing your, edge. your heart yeah. and your soul. And I think we need to, from the moment children are young, we need to help them be okay with a little bit of discomfort. You know, you go on a hike and you get... <clears throat> You're going to get rained on. It's okay. You don't run back to the trailhead. You just learn how to hike in the rain. And, and you know, it, it can lead to different experiences. I told you I saw the uh, two, two, thing, two long hikes I've been on this last week where I saw a bear. One was, and I was on a national park trail. I was about, right. I don't know if you've ever been in a national park. They're, they're just packed right now. So in the, at the trailhead, there must have been 500 people. And half a mile in, there's a hundred people. Wow. One mile in, there's I you know I saw maybe four or five people, six people. Started to rain like crazy, and everybody left the trail. And I kept hiking, and it got rained on for like four or five miles. And at the at five miles in, uh, mother bear and her cubs just come down on the trail, and I had this great moment, which I would have never had if I had. It was it was an uncomfortable hike. But I had this moment of delight sure. in seeing this beautiful bear and, and her cubs. Yes. <clears throat> that's right. And 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 I love I love that. And I, I, I know that that's part of your, you know, being in nature. It sounds like, you know, we haven't talked about uh, if you have spiritual practices, but I'm making the assumption that being in nature is, is one of your spiritual is, practices, yeah. uh, if not the practice. Yeah. And, 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 you know, from a mindfulness perspective, you know, the, the fundamental teachings are nothing is perfect, nothing is permanent, and nothing is personal. And um, I'm paraphrasing Ruth King, but these are the core mindfulness teachings. Um, and so to say that this is a passing emotion, or like, again, Dick Schwartz with no bad parts, that uh, the internal family systems model, that all emotions are welcome. It's just that, you know, mindfulness teachings uh, tell us that there are certain things that we prefer, that we like, that we want to gravitate towards, that we're greedy about, certain things that we're aversive towards, which is, you know, we're hateful about, and certain things that we don't give a damn about that just sort of pass us by, that don't really, you know, register on our radar because they don't impact us or our perception in any particular way because we're not programmed to be sensitized to them as a threat or as a something that we need. And that when we're overcoupling to somatic language, somatic experiencing language, that our preference with the experience, and we don't have the neutrality or the equanimity and mindfulness language around what it's like to be with the experience, to kind of be the witnesser or the observer or the in focusing language accompaniment to the experience, that we end up getting so garbled and caught up in our preference for or against with the idea that we dislike it and then with the belief, which is the hardened thought around it potentially being permanent, and then we just run, as opposed to, or as you say, we freeze, we fly, but, you know, really we want to flock, you know, which is one of the things you talk about in our book is, is to connect. And I think that that's so important because you're saying in your language, and I'm trying to introduce different language from other models and things that I've learned, that it's all talking about the same thing is the more that we recognize we're a part of the river of experience, the more that we recognize we are energetically always in relationship to everything and that we're not static. And as such, 
we're open, the more receptive we are, the more curious we are, the more secure we are, the more confident we are, then we can be open to the delight of the experience of the bear. And you're not the same man you were a week ago because of it. That's a beautiful way of thinking about it. So, well, you've given us so many beautiful gems to, um, to think about with this book. Uh, you know, I want to give you an opportunity to maybe offer any last parting words. I feel as though, you know, like I said, we could talk for days, but, um, I want to respect your time because it's been a really whirlwind, uh, period for you with this book. What happened to you with Oprah Winfrey, New York times bestseller. I encourage folks to read it. It Um, is, um, I just want to say I love talking with you, Francesca. It's always it's so much fun. Your big smile makes me smile. Look at this. <laughs> Even across the airwaves. Uh, well, you know, one of these days, we'll, you know, we'll talk about poetry, too, and we'll talk about, you know, writing and stuff like that. And, and you know, maybe how creatively, you know, like you say, walking. And I also want to put a plug in for walking meditation. You don't have to sit there. A lot of a lot of practices encourage walking meditation and Tai Chi and, you know, those kinds of things that keto can be a form of healing also. But um, What Happened to You is the book. Uh, Dr. Bruce Perry is the author and the guest today on the Rerooted podcast. You can learn more about him by Googling um, his name, Dr. Bruce Perry, the Neurosequential Model, or the Child Trauma Academy. You can take some of the trainings that he offers. You can find more about me at maximeclarity.com, M-A-X-I-M-E, Clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.com. I will be offering another embodied anti-racism class coming up in the fall of 2021 through the Copper Beach Institute. And the um, Wisdom School through Embodied Philosophy is offering on repeat the class that I offered in the spring of 2021 on embodied anti-racism. For anyone who wants to look at um, sort of interrogating both the social components and the somatic and you know neurophysiological and neurobiological components of what it takes to kind of transform ourselves and potentially society from the inside out. <laughs> it's kind of I'll a big aspiration. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who said this was a good idea to try, but I'm I'm trying. Aspiration. Be helpful. All right, Dr. Bruce Perry. Hmm? Sorry, go ahead. Finish. Change. Things will change. Things will change. Things will change. Yeah. I like the optimism. Thank yeah. you so much for um, being on yeah. Rerooted. All right. Take All good perfect. care. All right. Bye, Thanks Bruce. So bye bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P 
dot com slash be here now.